So if you've been with us the last few weeks in the journey that we've been on, we have seen some incredibly hard teachings that Jesus has given to the Jews as he's journeying towards Jerusalem. He's asked this question, will there be few that enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds by saying that the door is very, very narrow and that there will be many that don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as he tells this to the Jews, emphasizing that many of them indeed will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, he says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be there. And as the, as people are entering into the kingdom of heaven, they're going to be coming from the north and the south and the east and the west, alluding to the fact that it's going to be Gentiles and Jews that will be entering into the kingdom of heaven. But many of the Jews Will not. And as the Jews hear this message, it must be devastating to them. But instead of repenting, which would be the only right thing to do in that moment, their hearts continue to be hardened. And we're going to see that in the text tonight. And they continue to try to catch Jesus and become more and more angry at the teachings. That he's given. So tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. If you have your words, I encourage you to pull those out. And I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Father, we love you. God, I pray right now that you would direct all of our focus, God, towards you. Father, that you would captivate our hearts, that you would open up our eyes to your word. Father, as Mark has already said, that the scales would drop and that we would see you, Father, for who you truly are. Are. God, I pray as we learn tonight about humility and compassion, Father, that if we have lacked in these areas because we have not died to our flesh, I pray deep, deep conviction on our hearts that will lead to repentance, which is the message that you have come to preach, Father, so that we can glorify you and worship you through understanding that we cannot do anything, Father, to earn our salvation, but through your love, God, that you can form us and transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. You guys doing good tonight? Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive in here. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat, In the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. So as we pick up right in this text, we see that Jesus is on his way to eat in the home of a prominent Pharisee. Now, oftentimes in Jewish culture, Sabbath hospitality was very, very important. So Jesus has probably just got done teaching in the synagogue And there's a Pharisee that comes up to him and invites him to come over to his house for dinner. Now, in this moment, we could hope that this prominent Pharisee, which literally means that he was a ruler of the Pharisees, probably a part of the Sanhedrin, is inviting Jesus over because he has like this deep interest to know more fully what Jesus is teaching. But right away, we see that this is indeed not the heart of this Pharisee. This Pharisee is trying to lead Jesus into a trap. 
And I think that Luke emphasizes this well to Theopolis and many commentators would agree. There's two things here that really set up this trap that I think become apparent and help us to really understand what's actually happening here. First of all, if you look in verse one, as Jesus is coming in, he is being carefully watched. And so if you get this picture, like Jesus comes through the door and it's like all of the eyes in the entire place are focused on every single move that Jesus is making. Like they're just watching and they're just waiting. Like even Luke 11, after the six woes alludes to, they're just watching to see what Jesus will do because they want to trap him. They want to catch him doing something that would go against the Pharisees' teachings and that they could use to convict him as a criminal. So the second thing that we see happening is not only are they watching him, but in verse two, there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy is better known today of what we call edemia. And edemia is when the tissues in your body are filled with fluid and it creates this type of swelling. And I have a, a picture of a, a little boy that actually is, is suffering for, from edemia. And I want to share this with you guys so that you can get your minds around what this man must have been like. He probably had very intense pain because of the swelling that was happening possibly in his face or in his arms. Now, the second way that we know this is a trap is because a man with dropsy would not have been invited to this type of banquet. He would have not been invited into this Pharisee's home because most of the Pharisees would have considered this man to have either committed some type of sin which caused this dropsy to come into his life or they would have thought that his parents committed some type of sin which caused the dropsy. But either way, he would have been an outcast and he would have not been sitting right in front of Jesus. But... Even if he was in the room, he would have been on the outside, the peripheral, not able to come and to be a part of what was happening in the center of the room in front of Jesus. And so the Pharisees, this ruler, puts this man with dropsy right in front of Jesus. And they're all standing around and they're watching. <laughs> you guys get the picture? Like they're just waiting here to see what Jesus is going to do. No words are being said. Man with dropsy in front of Jesus. Silence. They're just watching to see what will happen. Look there in verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. <laughs> Don't you love Jesus here? I mean, he doesn't even give them an opportunity for them to say, so are you going to heal him? <laughs> Jesus knows their heart and he automatically just asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or is it not? And what do the Pharisees do? Classic Pharisee move. They don't answer the question. Now, the reason that they don't answer the question is because no answer that they can give will be good for them. It's a trap. Jesus has trapped them in their own game because when he asks this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or is it not? If they say yes, they've just gone against all of their own teachings. It's gone against everything that we've seen in Scripture as they have called out Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. So they can't say yes. They'll even be more hypocritical to the people. But if they say no in front of all the people that have gathered for this dinner, 
people look like monsters. And they can't look that way in front of the people because this man is like in the deepest possible pain. And if they reject him from healing, then all of a sudden the Pharisees have become the bad guys. And so what do they do? They say nothing at all, which in my opinion, convicts them even more of being punks. All right. But let's keep going. Check this out. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him away. Jesus does not waste any time. He asks the questions. There's like this momentary pause. And like we saw in Luke chapter 13 of the woman that was crippled and bent over by the evil spirit. It's like Jesus extends his hands. He takes hold of the man and and get this picture in your mind. Jesus puts his hands on this man's swollen, fluid filled flesh. And he heals him. It's probably the first time that this man has been touched, possibly in many, many years. And Jesus puts his hands on him in mercy and he heals him. What a beautiful picture of the healings of Jesus. Right after that, it says in the text that he sends him away. Now, the only thing that I can gather from this, and I didn't see many commentators who talked about this, but why is Jesus sending the man away? And the reason that I think that he sends him away is because Jesus knows that the Pharisee's heart inviting him is wrong. And Jesus doesn't want him to even have to be a part of what's happening in this dinner time with these legalistic punks. And so Jesus automatically sends him away after he's been healed. But it gets better. Check this out. Verse five. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately Pull him out. And they had nothing to say. Again, we saw this in chapter 13, but Jesus asked the question. So on the Sabbath, if one of you has a son or has an ox and let's say he falls into a deep hell, hell, sorry about that deep. Well, would you pull him out? The reason that they don't answer this question again is because there's only one answer. The answer is a resounding yes. Yes, they would pull out their son. Yes, they would pull out their ox. But if they say yes, they've trapped themselves again. Because as much as they should be willing to pull out their ox who's fallen into a hole, how much more should they be willing to help a man that is suffering with edemia? So much more they should be willing to help this hurting man. Now, a lot of times when we look at Scripture and we look at the Pharisees, we're like, yeah, you get him, Jesus. You tell him who's boss. You just ask the right question. That was awesome. Here's the deal. Like, that question needs to be asked to you and to me. If you had a son... Let's just pretend that you do for a minute. If you don't, I have a son, I have two sons and I have two daughters and one of them fell into a well on the Sabbath. Would I pull them out? Many of you will remember in 1987, for for those of you who were alive, I'm learning more and more. I'm I'm getting old. So 1987 for for some people is a long time ago. But there was a national story that gained worldwide attention about a little girl named baby Jessica. Do any of you remember this? Yes, all the old people in the room like me. (laughs) Baby Jessica, and, and Andrew, you can go ahead and throw that photo up on the screen. This little girl got trapped in a well for 58 hours. 
She was playing outside and her mom went in to answer the phone. And when her mom came back out, the little girl couldn't be found. And she had fallen into a hole that was only eight inches wide. And she was lodged. She was stuck inside of this hole for 58 hours. There were crews that came from all over the place. There was media attention like crazy. People were going nuts trying to figure out how to get this little girl out of this well. Now, if you can look at this picture, what an amazing scene to see this little girl being rescued. Here's the deal. If my son, let's just say my youngest son, Isaac, was out playing and he fell down into a well, I would be going nuts. I would tell Heather, I would say, honey, you've got to go and you've got to call 911. Call him immediately. And then I would be running out into the front yard. If the hole wasn't that big, I would grab a shovel and I wouldn't wait for 911 to come. I wouldn't be waiting for the paramedics. I wouldn't wait for the fire truck, for the police. I would be digging with my shovel, with all my my might, sweat running down my face, trying to get my son out of that hole because I would want to protect him. I'm his father. I'm his daddy. I wouldn't want my son to die. I would go and get all of my neighbors. I would tell all of them to bring their shovels. I would say, we've got to get my son out of this hole. In the same way that I would be passionate about my son in a hole on the Sabbath should be the same way that I am passionate about my hurting neighbors who are in a hole of despair and of loneliness that's dark and it's trapping because they are separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus because they don't know Him. Because they're depraved. If I would be that passionate about my little boy, Isaac, then how passionate am I about my neighbors on the Sabbath? I want to turn that question to you. How passionate are you about sharing faith with your neighbors? Not only on the Sabbath, but all throughout the week. In that moment where you see me frantically running around with a shovel calling 911, is that the same fervor, church, that we have for our hurting neighbors who don't know Jesus? It should be. That's the same fervor that we should have because they're in a hole and they're separated from the love of God. I'm not saying as we run with our shovels and we begin to dig people out that somehow we have the saving power. Only God has the saving power. But you know what? God has given us the shovels. He said, go, be a part of this. I'll do the work, but I want you to be a part of my plan. And it's our duty. It's our calling to be in love with people so that they can know Jesus and who He is. This is why on the Sabbath for us in our Lot family model, if you're a part of Lot families, we will never have groups that are what's called closed. There's a lot of churches and and we're not knocking churches that do this, but we will never have Lot families that will reach a certain number and then say, you know what? Nobody else can be a part of it because it's our duty and it's our calling to share the love of Jesus for those that are trapped and for those that don't know him. So, is that your fervor for those that are hurting around you? Is it the same as it would be for your son or your daughter that would be trapped in a hole on the Sabbath? Let's keep going. 
Verse 5. Then he asked them, if one of you has this... I'm sorry, verse 7. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friends, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in order to understand, I think, the whole context of what Jesus is saying here, you have to understand culturally what is happening. You see, in in Jesus' time, the way that one of these banquets would be had is that there would be a table that would be U-shaped, all right? And I think that we have an image of this that, that we can put up. I had a little extra time in the office today, and so I decided to draw a picture I really didn't draw that picture. I'm a liar. You see this this U-shaped table. And and the way that this would work is that they would recline on these little couches and they would lean on their left hand and then they would eat with the right hand. Now, at the very end of the U where the, the picture of Jesus would be in this table, that would be the head of the table. And so the seats that would be the most honorable seats would be those that would be next to the host. And the host would be in that that seat that you see Jesus in. And then moving down from there, so those are the people that would have the highest social status. And then moving down from there all the way to the end would be those that have the lowest social status. Now, the people that had the highest social status, kind of like the, the red carpet that we have today, they would be fashionably late. All right. And so the people of the lowest status, they would be expected to come and take their seats first. And then the host would take his seat. And then the people of the highest social status would make their entrance and they would come in and they would sit at the seats of honor. And so what Jesus is saying here in a practical way is, look, don't go and take the seats of honor, because what's going to happen when somebody come, comes in that's been invited to the banquet that is more honorable than you. Your host is going to come to you and your host is going to say, wait a second, I'm sorry, but that seat is actually reserved for somebody that has a higher status than you. So you know what? I'm going to take you from that seat and you're going to have to be moved down to the end. Now, for every single one of us, we can imagine the humiliation that would come from having to be moved from a seat of honor. This teaching is not only practical, but it's spiritual in nature. First of all, in in practicality, none of us want to be humiliated in a social context, right? I don't want to be humiliated that way. If you want to understand this a little bit better, think of it this way. Imagine going to your wedding, right? And it's just a beautiful beautiful ceremony. And after the wedding, you're going with your spouse and you arrive to your banquet center and you come in, you know, doing the the procession through, you know, YMCA is playing. It's like the classic, like wedding party entrance song. And so you walk through and everybody's dancing and everybody's having a good time. And as you arrive to the table of honor with your wedding guest, with your party, 
you get to the table and you see that the seat of honor, either for your best man or from your matron of honor, has already been taken. You get there and it's like this dude from the eighth grade, you know, and he was like your best friend. And he's sitting there just just, you know, chilling, just just waiting for you to, to come and, and to take your spot. And as you, as you get there and as you're at the table, you're like, what are you doing? Well, well, I mean, dude, we were best friends in the eighth grade. Don't you remember? We were in that like social studies class. We hung out all the time. You came over to my house. And we played video games. Come on, dude. You know me. You weren't even in the wedding. Well, well, I know I wasn't in the wedding, but I still thought that we were tight. Come on. I can sit in this chair, can I? Uh, you need to move. You need to get out of that seat. That seat is for the best man. Can you imagine being moved out of that seat? Not only is this a teaching that should be understood as practically we shouldn't take seats of honor, but we should take seats that are the very lowest. Because in this setting, when the host comes in and sees that you've taken the very lowest seat, he's going to look at you and say, what are you doing? Dude, you need to scoot up, man. Don't sit in the lowest seat. You need to move up. And when you move up, it's honor. It's not humility. So it's practical. But in another very, very real way, in another very, very important way, this teaching is absolutely and completely spiritual. Because humility is something that God has called us to partake in. It's something that he's called us to die to flesh and to be. If you take this teaching for one minute and say, here's a good teaching. This is something that I can use in my life and it's going to help propel me further up the social ladder. Then your false humility is sin. And that false humility is going to send you all the way to hell if that's the way that you choose to live. Because false humility is no humility at all. What Jesus is saying here is authentically to be humble. So what does it mean to be humble? I got on dictionary.com, which is my personal favorite, by the way. I don't like Webster's. just wanted to throw that out there. I'm going to send them a clip of this and hopefully they'll pay me. Um, Humility is to not be proud or arrogant, to be modest. That's what culturally we find in our dictionary today. Now, I'm not disagreeing that it's not to be proud or to be arrogant, to be modest. I do think that humility is that, but I think that humility is something that so much, is so much more. And uh, if you have your words, turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And check this out. Paul here, as he writes to the saints of Philippi, says something very, very beautiful about humility. And what I think that he does is I would say that he defines humility to a T of what it should be. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And so humility, friends, is humility is to consider others better than yourselves in all circumstances. Check this out. Humility is being a manager of a store. 
in one day deciding that you're going to go out to eat for lunch with your employees. And as you're walking through the parking lot, getting to the car, before they can even assume their socially accepted status of getting in the back seat because you're their boss, you automatically take the back seat before they even have a chance. And you don't do it because you want to look good. You do it because you care for them. And you truly believe in your heart that they are more important than you. And so you give them the front seat. Humility is being a college student and going into the Lindenwood cafeteria and looking around and seeing that there's a student that is sitting completely by themselves. Maybe they're not dressed the best. Maybe they don't look the most athletic. Maybe they just look like an outcast. And you see your group of friends sitting over here. And to me, humility is not going to your friends and sitting at the socially accepted seat that you would always sit in every single day, but going and sitting at the seat that nobody else would sit in because you consider that person better than yourself. Humility is showing up to Lot family on Sunday for your favorite meal. For me, it's breakfast, no question. Our, our Lot family does breakfast. Awesome. Just in case you don't have a Lot family come to mind, okay? So you show up to your Lot family and you look, you look down on the food spread and you realize that there's not going to be enough food. There's too many people here. And you are so hungry. And it's like your favorite food day. But as you see this, and then as you look at your brothers and sisters and your neighbors who have come to partake in that day, you automatically decide, I'm not going to go until every single person is through this line because I want to make sure that there is enough food for them. To me, that's a picture of humility. Humility, and, and, and here's a more childlike example. I don't know if this connects with any of you, but when I was little and me and my brother would do puzzles together, we got to this like weird place where as we're putting the puzzle together, like we would want to be the one that would put the last piece in. Did anybody ever do this with their siblings? Okay, I'm weird. Well, I'm going to finish telling you the story because I think that it applies. So we got to this place where as we're putting the puzzle together, we would take a piece and we would like stick it in our pocket. That way, when we would get to the end, it would appear that we were missing a piece from our puzzle. And then at the right moment, when it was all done and we're frustrated about this missing piece, it would be like, ah! and you would put the piece in. You'd be like, yeah, I finished the puzzle. You know, I saw my children do this last night for the first time. That's why I think that I must be weird in my family too. I'm sitting there with Benjamin and Olivia and they're putting together a puzzle and we get down to this place and I see Benjamin. He's like, you know, taking his piece. He puts it in his pocket and I didn't even teach him this. I'm like, my son is depraved, you know? And he gets to the end and it's like he pulls out the piece and puts it in. To me, humility is seeing that the last piece is coming and not taking it away. But in fact, seeing that the last piece is coming and sliding it over to your friend, sliding it over to your sibling and saying, man, <laughs> I consider you better than myself. I want you to put this last piece in. Humility is going home tonight after an early morning of preparing for a message, setting up chairs, getting ready for tonight, exerting myself, getting to spend time with people, getting home at 11 o'clock, getting ready to fall asleep and, and go to bed and laying there in my bed and my wife 
wanting to talk, wanting to spend time with me, and then saying, and will you rub my back? Oh, I just want to sleep. And humility is not doing any of that, but saying, I would love to rub your back. You know why? Because I consider you better than I consider myself. And even though I'm going to miss out on a couple minutes of sleep, I love you that much. And I'm willing to go right now an extra few minutes to be sure that you know, wife, that I consider you better than I consider myself. Humility is not just something that should be viewed as a way to increase your social status or your social popularity with friends. It should be viewed as something that is absolutely and completely necessitated for the life of the believer. Because not only does Jesus model it, but God commands it that we would be humble. If you look back in Luke, and we're going to hold your finger in Philippians because we're going to go back there. But if you look in Luke chapter 14 again, at the very end, check this out. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, anytime that something is repeated in Scripture like a whole bunch of times, it means that we better take note. Andrew, could you put that uh, humility slide up of the different passages? Not that one, the other one. Luke chapter 18, verse 14, says this same thing. Matthew 23, James 4, 6, and 10. 1 Peter 5, 5. Proverbs 3, 34. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to go and write every single one of those down. Search them out this week and look at what humility is called. Why are we called to do it? It's not for gaining social status. It's for this. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted, not here today. If you're looking to humble yourself, so your friends at church will look at you and say, man, that was really humble. That was really good. That's awesome that you did that. If that's what you're searching for in humility, then you're in sin. That is the wrong way to go about honoring God. Humility is not about what other people think of you. It's about worship. It's about honoring God with your life. And when it says that either you will be humbled if you're prideful or you will be exalted if you're humble, what that means is not here in this world today. It means in the judgment of God. When you're there in the day of judgment and as God is separating those to his left and those to his right that he's called and those that he has not called, you will be exalted being with God in eternity forever for the way that you have lived. Now, I'm not saying that if you live a humble life that you are going to earn salvation. Jesus saves. But if Jesus has saved you, it will spring up in you fruit, which will be humility. Because you will look to the needs of others more than you look to the needs of yourself. How are you doing in humility? How are you doing today? If you need to learn how to be more humble, there's one person that every single one of us can look to today and we can celebrate his humility. I promise you it's not me. I screw up in this area so many times. In my heart, maybe even if I don't do it outwardly, I do it inwardly. 
because of my flesh and because of the pride that exists within me. None of our other pastors do it perfectly or our small group leaders, but there is one. Amen? And it's Jesus. Looking back there in Philippians chapter 2, check this out. Verse 5 to 11. But your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, God, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came to this earth. He was born to a peasant woman in a little town not known for its military might in a manger. The absolute most humble way that any king could ever come. He lived a humble life existing on the love that others would provide for food and for shelter. He died a death by being put on a cross in His flesh, bearing the sins of every single one of us on that tree so that God could look at us and He could say, righteous. Jesus took your sin, sin that He didn't have to take, and He bore it on that tree. Could there ever possibly be a greater picture, friends, of what humility looks like? So being in His image, may we love Him. May we follow the way of Jesus and recognize that in order to be humble, we must die. Your flesh does not want humility. You will always want to be in the best seat. So you trust God and you follow the way of Jesus and you pray for Him to spring up in you fruit through your salvation so that you can know Him and so that you can glorify Him and bless others. Tonight, we're going to have a time for communion and we're going to go into that time right now. Matthew chapter 26. And as we look at the flesh and as we look at the blood of Christ tonight, may it remind you of the humility of our great God. You want to see something beautiful? Jesus was the greatest authority that has ever come. But authority and humility don't have to cancel each other out. Jesus comes in His full authority and He's fully humble and it goes hand in hand. How can the one that had the greatest authority to ever come on the earth be the most humble? Friends, humility is what we need. 
Check this out. As Jesus is gathered, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Jesus is gathered together with the disciples. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. So Jesus, as he is gathered around this table, takes a piece of bread and creating the image for his disciples saying, this is my body that is broken for you on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Me stepping on that tree and dying in the place that you deserve to die so that you can know God and so that you can be restored to the covenant relationship that you will have with him. Take and eat. And then moving on in that next piece, Jesus takes the wine and he says, this is my blood that is going to be spilled for you on your behalf. Take and drink. And tonight, as we go into this time of communion, if you don't know Jesus, I pray that that picture of what He has accomplished on the cross will bring you a great amount of freedom in knowing that you can walk with God and you can partake in this Lord's Supper if you desire to have a relationship with Him. Tonight, if you're here and you don't know God, you've never received Him, you don't have a relationship with Him, communion, the Lord's Supper is for those that are following Christ. And so tonight, we would just invite you to remain in your seats and to reflect on your life and to reflect upon God and what He has done. And we will pray for you that God will remove the scales from your eyes and that you will see Jesus truly and purely for the first time. But if you're a believer, this meal is for you. And it's to be a reminder of what Jesus has done on your behalf, becoming fully man and dying on that tree. So as the band comes up and as they lead us in worship, take as long as you need and reflect. And then when you're ready, come and partake in this beautiful feast that Jesus has given us. Father, we love You. God, I pray tonight that if there is a person here that does not know You, God, I pray the picture would be so clear for them of what You accomplished on the cross. And Father, that the blood of Jesus would cover them and that they would accept You into their life and they would be transformed from the inside out, becoming compassionate and being humble to the needs of those that are around them. Father, for believers here, if we have missed it in the area of love, missed it in the area of compassion for our neighbors and humility towards the other, I pray that you would deeply convict and we wouldn't even think for a second that we could come up and partake in this supper until we get on our faces and we repent. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.